Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we are joined by Ken Lemon, a reporter for the Western Bureau at WSOC in Charlotte, North Carolina, an affiliate for ABC and Telemundo. Ken is also the vice president for broadcast and the chairman of the Black Male Media Project for the National Association of Black Journalists, NABJ. The organization advocates on behalf of black journalists and media professionals with a membership of 4,000. Ken's been a reporter with WSOC for 22 years and has won a Murrow Award and three Emmys. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so I just gave a short description of your background. Can you give us a little bit of a longer one? I'll get to the NABJ in a moment, but first, can you just tell us about your history as a reporter, which I understand began when you were 13 years old. There was a magazine in my town for, for kids to, to write and, and produce stories, and I joined it, and it was uh, about a couple of months long, and I had a, an article published in that at 13 years old. And so, that counts. Yeah, it counts. It counts. But I, I've been in and out of journalism for a while. I was in, in high school. I had my own radio show that the local radio station let me put on about, you know, my high school. And then, you know, I, I ended up in this business after college as an editor first and then becoming a reporter, the editor, the guys behind the scenes who, you know, put together the videos that we see on the air. And then basically talking to my folks about becoming a reporter and so funny, I showed up, you know, several days in a suit, in a, in a tie and, you know, what have you. And if you've ever seen an editor in a newsroom, they look like the guy you'd see in a park on a hot day. You know, no, nobody really dresses up because you're not on air. But I said, you know, I'm going to walk into that office and I'm going to ask for a reporting job. And I want, I want the news director to see me as a reporter, not as an editor. And I went out and I learned from one of the guys, one of the reporters out in the field who let me tag him. And six months later, I applied for it, got a job as a reporter. And over a period of uh, time, can you give us an example of the kinds of stories that you do? A little bit of everything. I did a lot of crime reporting in my first job. You know, I did, you know, my first job was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And, and ironically, you know, because this, it's the, like the number two tobacco producing county in the world, I did a lot of agriculture stories. So we did drought stories and we did, you know, farming. And then we also did some crime. I've done a lot of court as well. And so it, it is everything. One of the things that I do a lot here that I'm known for a lot is this hurricane, working hurricanes. I started working on the coast and we, we're about four mile, four hours away from the coast now. So when the hurricanes hit the coast, I usually go because I'm familiar with the coast and because we've done a lot I've done a lot of hurricanes, I mean, a lot of them, and, and, and worked some of the bigger ones as well. And they're interesting. They're hard work. They're really hard work. I was going to say, don't you get scared? You know what? I remember one hurricane, I did get scared. I was out working, and there wasn't much to it, and we were out on the beach, and I stopped to interview this one guy who just happened to be out. As I'm doing the interview, facing him, I was, woof, this piece of something off of a house flew right by my head and we watched it we turned and watched it and it never hit the ground it went like we were a block away from the um, from the beach and it went straight into the water and at that point we were like okay this is serious and so we stepped in I went in on the tail end of Katrina thank goodness because we didn't go when Katrina happened 
we went afterwards. That was probably the most remarkable, the most impactful hurricane I'd ever seen. And we spent a lot of time in the Mississippi coast line just uh, east of, of Louisiana, where a lot of people from the Charlotte area were working. And I'd never seen devastation like that ever. I mean, anywhere. It was just unbelievable. And uh, it was unbelievable to the point that I remember after it was over, my photographer and I, we didn't work together afterwards. And we met up and we're like, you know, I was like, I'm always talking about that. He's like, I'm always. So in a form, we had a small version of PTSD. And I can only imagine how that was for so many people who were down there who had to go through that. The stories that I heard were remarkable. We met a group of individuals who were out when this thing happened and they were at a convenience store. And so when the water rose, there was nowhere to go. They kind of left and realized all the roads out are, are blocked. And they climbed on top of a, a convenience store and they stayed there. I met a guy who was a security at a Biloxi hotel, the hotel that tipped on his side and was on the highway. I don't know if you remember that one. And he told the story about going home. And he went home after the hurricane, a few blocks away from the coast, and the water started to rise. And it rose to the point that his neighbor's houses that weren't elevated were underwater. So they came over to his house. And it rose in his house on the first level so much that they went up to the second floor. And it rose so much in the second floor that they went up into the attic. And it started to rise in the attic and they were working on trying to get out through the roof, really literally trying to peel pieces of the roof apart when it stopped and began receding. As interesting as that story was, the look on his face when he told me that story told me everything about the impact that this storm had on him as an individual. And he lived in one of these neighborhoods that we drove around where there were X's on almost every door there, meaning that somebody died inside. And that, that, was, that was really probably the most impactful hurricane I'd covered. All right, so let's get to some stories that I think are a little safer. What, how do you come up with some of your story ideas? A series of things and everything changed. You know, when I first did this, you got on the phone and you called the fire department, police department and everyone in the first, first thing in the morning, you went down to the police station, you picked up reports, drove around with a scanner in your car. I tell people nowadays, one of the things I do is I, I'm on Facebook. People tell you the truth in Facebook. If anything is impacting somebody's life, ironically, it exists. And there are a lot of community groups where we actually go and get news. So, you know, a small town may have a one man's junk or what have you. And people will talk about, you know, the kid that went missing around the corner that you might not hear immediately in reports or anywhere else, but people are talking about in the neighborhood. Some of that comes from that. The other is, you know, keeping in contact with individuals who are, you know, who understand what's happening. So people in city council, people in county government, people who make the decisions that impact people's lives, keeping up with police, keeping up with courts and, you know, and, and getting into the flow of things. And, and once you're in that flow, you know, the, 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 the pipeline of stories and the opportunity for stories are there. So that includes a hodgepodge of things. And we, we're always looking for the story about people first and foremost. And speaking of that, you told me a story off air about a baseball situation that took place that you did a TV feature on recently. It was a fascinating story. Just articulate for us on that one, how it came to be and what the story was. So this is a, a remarkable 
remarkable story that goes back to the 1930s and the city where I live now and work in Gastonia, just west of Charlotte, and a baseball game, an American Legion baseball game where there was a, it was a, it was a regional to the World Series and teams came down to play in Gastonia. And the one team from an area, uh, Holyoke, uh, just outside of uh, Springfield, had a black player in it on that team. And this kid was not just a black player. He was you know, he was the Jackie Robinson of like Babe Ruth altogether. And at that time, there was still a lot of racism, a lot of very overt racism. The teams basically came and, and told the team from Springfield, Massachusetts, hey, look, you can take the field, but your black player can't. And there have been threats. And we're hearing something from the KKK and they may show up. And this young 16-year-old captain who was the star of the team before Bunny, that's the, the name of the, the Black player, before Bunny came along, stepped up and made this courageous decision. And he basically said, if Bunny's not going to play, we're not going to play. They packed up, they left, they went back to Springfield, they implored the American Legion to take a stand against racism, they didn't do it. And so they basically, you know, forfeited all of their wins. Uh, this team did for taking this courageous stand. And for the longest, nobody knew about this story, this situation. The young man who was young at that time, Tony King, who made that call back then, the young white guy who stood up for, for his Black teammate, said nothing until about 2003 when they erected this monument in Springfield, in this area there. After that, the word got around and somebody wrote a book, a children's book called A Home Run for Bunny. And that book made it to the mayor of Gastonia at the time in 2015. And the mayor's like, I knew nothing about this. Now, this courageous stand was literally wiped into oblivion. Nobody knew anything. There was no record of it. There was nothing there. I went into the American Legion sort of Hall of Fame or, or, or area where they keep all their artifacts here. And there's, there's nothing there but that one book, Home Run for Bunny. So this was a team who took that step and literally got wiped off the map until this came back. And so the city of Gastonia then held reconciliation games. They held games here in Gastonia and then up in Massachusetts to kind of make up for what happened there. And I got the opportunity through our partnership to hear from Tony King, guy who was, who was 16 at that time, who made that decision. He was unfortunately at a soldier's home in the town where we had 76 people die of COVID. He was one of the 76 in that soldier's home that died of COVID. And the story just got richer from there because I talked to his daughter, his niece, who she said, you know, she got drawn in. And once this thing became big, you know, they would make trips around to the local schools and talk to kids and he and she would go with them. And she asked once, she said, you know, why did you, why'd you go so long without telling anybody what you did? And he said, I didn't think it was big. It was just the right thing to do. It was just the right thing to do. And so we're working now on trying to do something a little more with that, with the author of Bedtime, excuse me, Home Run for Bunny, and with Denise, and with this incredibly rich story about somebody taking a stand at a time when it was so easy for so many people to just go, we'll just look the other way and keep going and act like it didn't happen. Yep. Yeah. And it's a, it's a terrific story. I, I saw it, you sent it to me. I got to uh, watch it. I will uh, put it in the show notes. That takes us to now. And your station just aired a special one-hour show that you put together, Conversations with Five Black Men. These people ranged in age from 17 to 62. You had a student, a chef, a therapist, a tech VP, and a pastor. 
to borrow a term from an earlier episode uh, of this podcast, you let them be the experts on their lived experience. And they talked about code switching, coping with daily pressure, systemic racism, and much more. How did that show come together and what were you trying to accomplish with it? Well, ironically, this actually came from our specials producer. So white female, we talked about this afterwards and I really thanked her for it. And she came to me and she said, you know, we've been talking about doing this for a while and I think we need to do it. And we sat down and we did this interview back in October. And I've always done, if you don't know anything about TV, uh, the stories basically are a minute 20 maximum on a daily basis. And sometimes you get a special and those specials get up to two minutes and maybe three minutes. And we thought about doing a two-part series, maybe a total of six minutes of total TV time. And she says during that, she says, this is going to be a one-hour special. And I thought, yeah, right, okay. And these guys opened up and they told me everything. They told me how they felt. They told me how they were impacted. They told me those life-changing moments. One of them revealed he attempted suicide three times in college because of pressures of racism. He was, a, he was an athlete and a scholar, you know, at uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill playing football there. And he felt the pressure to be perfect so that circumstances were always available for other black men who followed him and that moved him. And he eventually became a mental health specialist. And, and they just kept getting richer and richer. And, and the senior VP of a tech company, there are very few black senior people in tech companies, black people, let alone a senior VP and, and talking about being the only person there and, and how, he, how he handles that and how he advises his son. And we did a one hour special that aired for the first time a week and a day ago, and the response was phenomenal. We coupled that not only with just their stories uh, and their experiences. They talked a little bit near the end about change and 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 you know what change should be. And then we also coupled that with a challenge, a twenty way one day challenge. That challenge was to to become a change agent to fight against inequity and racism. And so it wasn't just hearing these voices that one needed to be heard to be validated, but it was also about giving people the tools to understand if you believe this is wrong, here's how you can change it. And so it was a discussion coupled with action. And we're now talking about expanding that. As a matter of fact, we got a meeting, meeting in a couple of days to talk about expanding that and doing more. Yeah. One of the, the more interesting people on the show was 17-year-old Ramon Curry, who was captured in a viral video during a protest in which an older man got in his face and told him, find a better way rather than yeah. going after police. And I saw another piece about him and was surprised to learn he wants to be a police officer. He wanted uh, to just be a police officer. Tell yeah. us about him. Well, it's a remarkable story. This was after the death of George Floyd. There were protests everywhere. I mean, across, the, you know, internationally, across the globe. And there were protests here in Charlotte. And I, I, he snuck out of the house. His mother didn't want him in, engaged. He was 16 at the, at the time. And he snuck out of the house and he went down to protests. And I was there. It was so amazing. I was yards away, but I was there when they shut down portion of an interstate, the belt that goes around Charlotte. And it was during that point on that highway that one of first another older man came to him frustrated over the death of George Floyd, angry, and he was ready for violence. And he was ready to go after the police who were there. And the police were basically escorts. They weren't, they weren't trying to stop anybody. They were just allowing them to move through and around and stopping traffic around them. And this young man, Ramon, who was, you know, really 
frustrated, wanted to make change, upset. You could see him listening to that individual when another guy stepped in and grabbed him by the shoulders. And he says to the three of them, he says, look at these generations of men. You know, here I am. He's he he, you know, the guy who did this, who stepped in. He was he was in what you might consider a younger adult, you know, twenties, thirty, maybe, the guy who was the influencer trying to influence towards a negative action was an older guy. And here was Ramon there. And he says, look, what we're doing isn't working. And he implored him to find a better way. And somebody happened to be around recording that moment and posted that moment. And it went viral. Uh, it went viral. And the guy who issued that challenge ended up on, you know, Good Morning America or one of the, one of the, one of the morning shows. And that was a moment that this young man who stepped out of the house, his life was changed forever because he went out believing that just standing out could make a change. He was challenged by someone to change by taking a negative action and then redirected by somebody. And he's living with that challenge. And he's thinking about that on a constant basis about things he can do to make the world better. How, and, uh, how did you get him to open up? Well, you know what? I actually met him. So I did the story with him a couple of days after it happened. And then, you know, his, him and his mother I had a chance to speak with him a few times. And I invited him on because I really wanted him to be there. And I think what we did when he opened up in that moment was it, it was an atmosphere. We wanted to create a safe place for these guys to talk and to be authentic and to really share. And it, it was being there. It was allowing them to speak. When we do normal news, my interviews are five minutes long. So it was me sitting there being able to say for two hours, tell me what you think and listening. And also the thing you didn't hear is me sometimes sharing my own experiences. At one point I asked the guys a series of questions. You know, have you ever had, you know, somebody, you know, look at you as though you're threatening the minute you walk on, walk, step on an elevator, walk across the street rather than walk by you. And I said, with all those questions, all five of you raise your hand. And I, my hand went up every time, too, because I experienced those same things. So being authentic with them also helped to get them to talk to us. Well, I was going to ask, what challenges, I want to segue to NABJ, but just to, to kind of put a bow on this, what challenges do you face in your job as a Black reporter? There are always challenges. The one challenge is, a perceive, is, is people who perceive that, you know, that, I, that you have a bias that your race plays a role. And, and, and my job is to find facts and present them, to find ideas and, and other people's opinions and present them. That's one thing. You know, it's, 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 a, it's always difficult. You can tell when people don't quite trust you and they, they can, they'll show you that on the street quite, quite obviously. And my, my goal is really kind of different than what you might otherwise expect. My goal, my goal is still to get truth from them regardless as to how people feel about me. And, and in that strange sense for years, it's, it's not being, it's working not to be the story. First rule of journalism, don't be the story, report the story, don't be it. And so it is, it is working to get those ideas included into what you do regardless. Yeah. Okay, so let's segue to your work with the NABJ where you're the vice, where you're the vice president for broadcast. What does the VP for broadcast do? Well, the VP for broadcast represents our members and uh, people who are in the broadcast field, Black journalists, uh, who are in the broadcast field, and that means um, doing a lot of things. This year, or this past year, it really changed. So with COVID, it, is, it was a lot of talking to individuals and understanding 
how COVID was impacting the industry, how it was shifting, how it was moving, preparing. There were times when, you know, for a lot of our a lot of our GMs were telling me that, you know, revenue was under. And we really believed that a, a mass exodus or job loss was coming because people weren't buying ad sales. And your restaurant doesn't can't open. You're not gonna buy an ad sale. So we did that and working to also make sure that those journalists are covered and protected. One of the things that we did is 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 start. I began with the initial discussions with with a couple of other board members about beginning a fund that we can help give money to journalists who are suffering. And many journalists lost their jobs, furloughed, freelancers lost opportunities, weren't able to go back to work. Even people who were PR, which is another arm of what NABJ does, found that their opportunities dried up because of COVID. So that's part of it. And the other part that's the most visible is making sure that opportunities are there. It is promoting diversity and fairness for journalists. And, and that's been kind of a big peg of what, what we've done lately on a national basis. What is the state of TV newsrooms when it comes to hiring black, uh, black journalists, both on air and off air? It depends on where you are. Some of them do it well, and we like to highlight it. Some of them really more than doing it on the air. Our biggest concern is who's in the decision-making positions, who's hiring, who's deciding what stories are on today. And those are some of the, those are some of the, the bigger complaints that we get uh, is that, you know, stories from certain communities won't make, won't make the air, won't be considered. We're, we're most interested in those areas and making sure there are people there. And some, some places do a great job at building a pipeline. NBC just committed to, to a mass improvement in, 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 in minority leadership and, and is working towards that. And then other places have to do more, need to do more, and are lacking in representation. And, and we think, um, we know that when you have fair newsrooms and when you have you know, people who can, who can help make sure that you stay away from landmines and mistakes, but also make sure that, that communities are covered. The newsroom is enriched. Your viewership is enriched. Your, the folks who rely on you for the truth get a better perspective than without that. I want to uh, touch on some recent things that have happened in regards to what you're talking about. In my area, I'm in eastern Pennsylvania, and if you live anywhere near Philly, you know who news anchor Yuki Washington is. And the LA Times just had a story about the president of CBS television stations, Peter Dunn, who made derogatory remarks about Yuki. The newspaper's report also said that several black journalists had either left their positions at that Philadelphia station or were blocked by uh, Mr. Dunn or another person there from being hired. There was more to the story related to bullying women. It it just sounded pretty gross overall. You can look at other areas. WCBS New York has only one black woman reporting, went a long time without a black male. ABC News, their president just retired. The NABJ has asked Disney to hire a black president. ABC's had its troubles too. One One executive left in July after being accused of making racist comments. They've just hired Janice Johnston as the executive producer of 2020. She's the first woman and the first black executive producer of the show. I know that the NABJ is looking for more than that. I see a lot of quotes, both from you and from others, about these stories. What more can you say about what the NABJ is looking to do in these areas? Well, we're still working in good faith in a lot of those areas, and that, that is promising. 
that is. Galen Gordon, also a longtime NABJer, uh, put in a high position there at ABC, you know, given that opportunity, a bright individual, bright guy who's going to do some great work there. In those positions, what you, what you have are individuals who were silenced, individuals who were targeted, individuals who were moved and shuffled, uh, a lot of times on the basis of race. That's not right. And, you know, it, it's not hard, it's not difficult to see how that's not, not right. And you, you hear the comments that just kind of send a shiver up your spine. More important is when we, we talk to individuals and you realize that lives are literally being changed because somebody's misconception, somebody's discriminatory thoughts and opinions, and being in a position to impact that. So think of the num number of individuals who had opportunities that were missed because someone said no. We actually began work with them with CBS back in the early, but almost a year ago, as a matter of fact. So we had a meeting with CBS and a meeting with Viacom, and actually our Viacom meeting was pushed back because of COVID. So it's literally about a year ago that we began working in, in discussions, and it really took a big turn when the LA Times story came out. And again, if you haven't read that, please read it. Some of the things that was said about Yugi, Yugi was just, it, it just- It was horrible. Shake your head. Yeah. And, and, and the, sad, the sad portion of that is what's stated there, you know, kind of disappoints because you think once you get in a position, regardless of how people feel about you, if you affect numbers, if you are able to change ratings and get, draw people in, that that would influence opinion, right? It works in sports, you, you know, right? If yep. you win, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter who you are in sports now. And we found that that wasn't the case. People who were not only doing a good job but drawing, drawing people to the product, to, to that entity, were still mistreated, maligned, and even let go. And you're also working on another uh, project that I'm, I became familiar with in the last week. What is the Blackmail Media Project? The Blackmail Media Project was started about five years ago and by the president of NABJ at that time. And, and it does just a few things. Number one, it works within newsrooms, really looking at black males and trying to pull black males in. So it works on professional development, networking, and mentorship. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of mentors through the Black Male Media Project that I'm working with directly. It also works on the accurate portrayal of the contributions of Black men to their community, which oftentimes gets missed. And, and so we, we work on those goals. When we started, we started with what we call kind of a corporate day. And so we have chapters, uh, NABJ chapters all across the country. And we ask all of our chapters to be engaged on one day in June with doing projects that accomplish those few things in the way that they see fit. And for our first four years, I think it was three years, I think it was COVID that kind of knocked us off. We were trending one, two, and three on Twitter on the day of our corporate event under our hashtag, Inspired Black Men. And it was just a great opportunity to get rich images out. And so there were people who were doing things like one, one group of individuals in Baltimore brought in a bunch of young men, 
young black men into newsrooms, into a news, into a, a radio station. One actually got to do the weather at, at one station there. We, we were out working with people in the community. And in the Charlotte area, we went out and we fed the homeless. A bunch of black men got together. We went out and we fed the homeless. And then we came together and we talked about what does coverage look like? And what are those rich stories that are missing? And who are those people who are making an impact? And what are the ways that we can help build on on gains that we've made. And so we've had cities, you know, LA, New York, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Dallas, in Miami, an NBA player and, and a rapper were celebrated for the work that they did there as part of their engagement. But it's really taken the opportunity to use that collective voice to celebrate Black men, to, to make sure the world understands exactly what it is Black men bring to the table, and, and also to help you know, build a, a coalition that will support Black men in uh, journalism, uh, be that print, be that broadcast, be it digital, uh, be it you know, uh, even in, in PR. So I've asked this on a few shows recently, and I ask it to you too. And it's, it's not just necessarily representing me, but it represents the broader swath. What can I, 46-year-old white male living in the mid-Atlantic, do to help your causes? Well, one of the things that you can do is you can still become a member of NABJ. When you're speaking of NABJ, you can still become a member of NABJ. You can engage in the dialogue. You can help contribute to not only some of the funds that help, help send our, our students to college and provide opportunities for them to learn and to grow and to develop, but you can, you can, you can also I mean, be a part of the, the greater discussion and, and the learning process. So we have training that goes on year round for our members. We, we've jumped in the clubhouse here in a big way. A lot of our training is now virtual. That means the opportunity to be engaged now no longer requires a MapQuest or a, a, a GPS to be there. You can literally attend a, 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 a meeting in New York from LA or what have you, much the same way that people are working from home now. So it is being engaged in that way. And from a greater perspective, and some of the work that we've done with the discussion with Five Black Men is, is really being a part of that conversation, that dialogue, that open dialogue with other individuals uh, with an empathetic ear and, and looking for an opportunity to help one another. And what we find a lot of times is particularly lately, the biggest fear and the biggest concern is that there are so many barriers between people and factions that are built and people really stop and look at the other side as another individual with an opposing thought or idea as much as an opponent who's, you know, their job is to take out with all costs. And so that's, those are the ways that you can help. And certainly it's something that can't be done one person on their own. Uh, I always ask this as well. Can you tell us about the president of the NABJ and the other VPs? I can, but let me, let me say something. You go. One, one person on their own, one person makes a big difference. And, and it, we, the biggest thing that we do is we wait to do it collectively. We wait for other people. And the way that groupthink works oftentimes is we're waiting for the group to tell us where to go, to tell us what to do. And, and sometimes what it takes is that one voice to step up and say, this is the way to go. This is what to do. And so one person at a time is still an effective way to help and make change. You know? So 
NABJ, you asked me about the structure. Our president, Dorothy Tucker, who works at, uh, at, uh, works out of Chicago and is, is a investigative reporter, been around for a very long time and done a great job. We have our VP of digital, Roland Martin, a, voice, a name that you know, political consultant, al- an analyst, and has his own show also that he's doing digitally. Kathy Cheney is our VP of print, also Chicago journalist, uh, print journalist with a you know, a, also a background in, in radio, brilliant individuals, our parliamentarian, Michelle, our, I'm, I'm going to forget people, our secretary. I didn't Cheryl, mean to do that to you. <laughs> yeah, who's a good friend of mine, and our, and our treasurer, Walter, who just came on board with us. What we found is a good cohesion. This is a board that works very well, and we have four regional directors, and we have representation, academic, PR, students, and we, we've had an opportunity to make big change. And in the last two years that I've been on the board, I've been really proud of the work that we've done. I have three questions to wrap up as we kind of hit the, the, the close of our, of our show here. It's Black History Month. Can you give me a couple of Black journalists from the past that you would like to salute? Max Robinson. Max Robinson was a correspondent for ABC News. And he's also one of the NABJ founders. And Max Robinson, I'll never forget as a child watching him on TV and everything in the room stopped the minute he showed up. And when he was anchoring, everything stopped. And we thought the world of him. We literally, our household hung on the balance of how he did because the thought was if he messes up, then we're all, it's over for all of us. But we were also immensely proud to see a black man in that position doing great work and hearing his back backstory. That's one. Another is Carol Simpson, who I, I had the opportunity to meet also for ABC News, just a phenomenal, elegant individual. And then one recent here that I had an opportunity to meet with Joshua Johnson. He's now a contributor with MSNBC, former host of 1A on, on, on NPR, who I just loved. I love to hear his voices. I told him, you know, you, you made me late on a couple of stories because I get in the car listening to him, you know, do his thing and then sat around a little bit long. But three individuals who are really compelling to me, Joshua, who I believe is younger than me, but just just really good at what he does and and an awesome individual to work with and to be around. He worked with Black Male Media Project for a couple of projects, events, projects that we had. So we do advice, one advice question per show as well. And I was gonna ask something different, but now I wanna circle back to the beginning of the show. You talked about all of the different times that you covered hurricanes. So I would be curious what advice you would give to people, journalists who aspired to cover challenging weather. Socks, lots of socks. There's nothing, there's nothing in the world more dreadful than, hate, than, than, than wet socks and run out of wet socks. During Hurricane Sandy, I, I, I mean, I ran out of dry socks and I would advise them to be ready to work. I, when I did it, the first time I did it for WSOC was a little bit different. When you do it down on the coast, everybody's covering weather. When you do it WSOC, you go down, there's a lot of work involved. The, the, Things change moment by moment. Getting to know people who can share information with you is different because they're, not all of them are the people that you communicate with on a daily basis. So stopping in and making those contacts with them, but enjoy it. Get out there and, and, and be in it and, and, and try your best to enjoy it and try never to forget the human end of it. The, the wind and the rain and, and all those other things you, you've seen people you know trying to stand, none of that is important is what it means to the family who can't get out 
and get that. What it means to the end of uh, get food or 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 cannot find shelter and and those individuals who whose lives are completely changed because of what's going on around them. Impact certainly Impact. The, the thing to remember. All right, last question: Is there a journalism organization or person? Ideally, not. We like to do something that isn't connected to your organizations and not connected to your organizations that you would like to salute for doing good work. Well, there are a lot of organizations that do good work. Certainly, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, who have partnered with us, also do good work. A Society of Professional Journalists also do good work. The the Ida B. Wells, they also do good work and and that phenomenal work in investigative you know, investigative reporters and editors. And what I tell young journalists is find these groups, like go out and find them because those are the groups that not only will help train you, but also will help with networking. Those are the places where you'll find the journalists who've been working a long time, where you'll find the editors and news directors and managers and the individuals who are going to see you working hard, growing, developing, sharpening your your sword and, and getting better at your craft and say, that's the person who should be given an opportunity. Yeah. And Lemon, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I want to take a second to reference the NABJ's commitments as listed on their website. The NABJ is committed to strengthening ties among black journalists, student journalists, journalism educators, and media professionals, to sensitizing all media to the importance in the workplace for black journalists, to expanding job opportunities and recruiting activities for veteran, young, and aspiring black journalists and media professionals while providing continued professional development and training, to increasing the number of black journalists and media professionals in management positions and encouraging black journalists to become entrepreneurs, to fostering an exemplary group of professionals that honors excellence and outstanding achievement by black journalists and outstanding achievement in the media as a whole, particularly when it comes to providing balanced coverage of the black community and society at large, to working with high schools and colleges to identify and encourage black students to become journalists and communicators, and to diversify faculties and related curriculum, and to provide informational, educational, and training services to the general public. I also want to draw attention to something that I'm familiar with in my industry as a play-by-play broadcaster. There is a group, the Black Play-by-Play Broadcaster Grant and Scholarship Fund, that was recently begun by Adam Giardino, that is doing great work. And I asked him to share a little something with me. He noted, of the 200-plus television and radio play-by-play jobs in Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, three are currently filled by black broadcasters. A lack of diversity exists across the play-by-play profession, and the Black Play-by-Play Broadcaster Grant and Scholarship Fund addresses many barriers to entry that exist for aspiring black broadcasters. This fund will lift those who otherwise wouldn't be able to get a start in the field while pushing the industry to more closely reflect the country as a whole. They have already raised in excess of $25,000 through grassroots fundraising and distributed $3,500 to four current college seniors for the spring 2021 semester and have launched a mentorship program featuring over 40 professionals working with nearly 20 applicants from across the country. For more information about the nonprofit and how to donate, go to www.blackpxpfund.com. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. 
Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.